Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We will have other scripture readings in the course of the message tonight, but I'd like to set on your heart and ears this brief passage at the heading of Luke's Gospel, his preamble. Let us pray again. Our gracious God, we come before you through our Lord Jesus again tonight upon the occasion of the public reading of Scripture and its preaching, and we ask, O Lord, that you would grant a a great help to all of us, to our sons, to our daughters, to our spouses, to all who are gathered here. We ask that you would help them understand what they hear in your word. Give them that work and fruit of your spirit by which they shall understand and recognize your authority therein. And Father, we pray that you would reform each of us according to your grace as we hear this word and believe it, and that you would give us all necessary courage to indeed make whatever changes in our believing or behaving that are required of us having now heard the voice of our Master, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless us, for such is your will, such is your power, such is your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is God's word. Well, you may have expected what is about to come, that it would come. Well, here it comes. One of the dominant themes found in the 95 theses, which Martin Luther posted on the church door at Wittenberg, Germany, was the theme of purgatory. Luther's early Facebook post took place, took place 505 years ago on October 31st, 1517. The anniversary is tomorrow. At the time, Pope Leo X was claiming he had the power and authority to deliver the souls of your relatives from purgatory or shorten their time spent in purgatory. If you confessed your sins... If you expressed contrition, and if you made some kind of contribution to the church. Now, purgatory, says the Roman Catholic Church, is a realm for souls after death where the just are purified of their sins before they can go to heaven. The Roman Church teaches that the sufferings of souls in purgatory can be shortened in duration and intensity through the prayers and good works of the faithful on earth. 
So the thing that really got Martin Luther upset, leading to his 95 theses, was the launch of Pope Leo's purgatory indulgence campaign, a campaign to raise funds for the construction of a grand, ornate church building, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The idea was that by giving money to the church, you could purchase indulgences, which, like coupons, would reduce the time your dead relatives had to spend in purgatory. One of the most successful indulgence vendors was a Dominican named John Tetzel. Maybe you didn't know it, but you would, to become an indulgence vendor, you had to buy a franchise. And Tetzel was one of the franchisees under Albert of Brandenburg. He got to keep a cut of the money that was given for these indulgences. Well, Tetzel would come into these towns, into their open-air markets, and launch into a sermon that included a little jingle, a little jingle which Martin Luther came to hate with a passion. Tetzel would declare, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That was his jingle. Luther found all this gross, corrupt, and thoroughly absent from Holy Scripture. It was made up. Luther liked to say, if the Pope does have the power to release anyone from purgatory, why in the name of love does he not abolish purgatory by letting everyone out? You can imagine that Luther won many friends by such combative logic, just as our Lord Jesus when he went and taught and cut through the fog of the sophisticated, vain calculations of tradition and men, the crowds were drawn to him, for he taught as one with authority. So should his ministers. More specifically to what Tetzel was doing, Luther wrote this in Thesis 27 of the 95. They preach only human doctrines, who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. You can tell from Luther's language there, he is pressing the issue of authority and certainty. By what authority does the Pope create, sanction, and allow the sale of indulgences to proceed in the church? How can the Pope be certain that what he believes about purgatory and the power of indulgences is endorsed by Almighty God? And just as important, how can the lowliest congregant who's emptying emptying half of their savings into the coffer, how can the lowliest congregant, the, the smallest sheep, the widow with the mite, how can she be confident that she has the authority under God to keep her money for bread, for room, for board. Luther, of course, was already convinced of the answer before the 95 Theses. Many of the Pope's ideas were merely human doctrines to Luther. 
not divine doctrines. Luther was always ready to use our Lord's own rebuke against Pope Leo X. In Jerusalem, our Lord Jesus said to the church leadership there, In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What an echo chamber that is. Men declare their commandments. They collect them after they have declared them, and they codify them as doctrines. This is not dissimilar to an unfortunate but accurate rap against preachers. A preacher quotes a man, gives the citation of his quote, says so-and-so said this, and then he does it again and says so-and-so said this, but he does that long enough where he starts to say, I have often said, and then the quote becomes his own. It is a weak integrity. It is a vanity. Well, one year, almost to the day, after posting his 95 theses, Luther was standing before the Italian cardinal Cajetan at the Diet of Augsburg. Cajetan told Luther he must recant his views on indulgences and his views on papal infallibility. Luther refused to recant. And on the issue of papal infallibility, Luther said to the cardinal, I deny that he is above scripture. Beloved, you should boldly, freely deny that any pope or council is above scripture. With great zeal, you should deny that. For the Lord Jesus Christ, as you are going to see tonight, has given you the authority to do so. Because the authority to do so is in the word of God. Well, two and a half years after the Diet of Augsburg, which was 1518, in April 1521, Luther is on trial for being a heretic at the Diet of Worms. Now, these are towns, by the way. Luther would make his most well-known statement there about authority in the church. The exasperated Archbishop of Trier, John Eck, said to Luther, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther replied, Since then your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer, I will give you one without teeth and without horns. Unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of scripture or by manifest evidence, I cannot and will not retract. For we must never act contrary to our conscience. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. Authority and certainty for Luther in all matters of faith and practice were found in Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the final authority. Luther was, of course, helped by the church fathers, as we should be. He was helped by church church councils, as we should be. He was helped by the great creeds, as we should be. Don't leave home without them. But the final authority for Luther in all matters of faith was Holy Scripture, and so it should be for you. Because this is not a Lutheranism. This is Scripture's own teaching. 
your final authority in all matters of faith and practice is Scripture. Holy Scripture did not receive its authority from the interpretations and doctrines of the Pope and his church. If Scripture only receives its authority after the Pope and his apparatus tells us what it authoritatively means, then the Pope and his church are above Scripture, which is, of course, the exact view of the Roman church today. The Roman church declared in Vatican II that the authority of the church precedes the authority of the canon of Scripture. As a result, Scripture in and of itself is insufficient. They state that explicitly in Vatican II. The Roman church is needed, they say, from the start as Scripture's originating cause and birth mother. In this scheme, the Bible is unnecessary. Here's how Matthew Barrett, a top-level scholar of the Protestant faith, explains the point of Vatican II. If the Bible were to be erased from history tomorrow, the church would continue, thanks to its second authoritative and infallible source of divine revelation, tradition. Since the church produced scripture, it can survive even if scripture vanishes. That's the logic of the statements made in Vatican II about the insufficiency of scripture without the tradition of the church. Now, from our little passage tonight that we read from the top of Luke, I want to show you that it is the scripture that is the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. In those four verses, Luke tells us, he tells the whole church of God that he is writing so we may have certainty. Now, when he says that he's writing to a man named Most Excellent Theophilus, he may indeed be writing to a singular man whom he is thinking of who has the name Theophilus. But he may actually be using the name Theophilus as a placeholder for the entirety of the believing church because the name or word Theophilus means friend of God. But he could be thinking of a specific person who in some way has perhaps provided him finances to engage in the work of his research to write his gospel. That was very common, to have a benefactor who allowed you to do something other than your ordinary income to work on some, some special project. But even if that were the case, it is not unprincipled at all to recognize that he is writing this for a man, a friend of God, to believe with certainty the things he will write. So, the certainty which Luke speaks of in verse 4, that certainty is not a certainty about all the things that have ever happened. It is not a certainty about all the things that have ever been discussed in the history of the world. Nor is Luke's certainty in verse 4 a certainty about all the things that have not yet happened or all the ideas that have not yet been discussed. The certainty of which Luke speaks 
is certainty in the matters he is writing down. The doctrinal and historical matters he will record and report in his important project, which will end up going by the name, the gospel according to Luke. Luke believed he had the authority to write down what was true and trustworthy. He believed he had the authority to produce a historical account of the life of Jesus Christ and the teaching of Jesus Christ. And he had the authority to produce it with certainty, which means he had the authority to produce an account in writing that would refute all other such accounts that would contradict him. Think about that, what he's saying here. This is the word of God. If Theophilus heard or read elsewhere something quite different that could not be reconciled to what Luke had written, then Luke's work was to be regarded by Theophilus as the certain truth of the matter. Why? Where? Because Luke had been given authority to write it, and its certainty was in what he had written, the Holy Scriptures. For Luke, certainty was not somewhere away from what he had written. It was in what he had written. As the man Theophilus or the church Theophilus received the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures were sufficient to deliver certainty. Now, the scriptures will never deliver certainty to a man without the care of the Holy Spirit either a man who hears the scriptures preached or sits down and looks into them and reads them. Without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, such a man cannot come to certainty. But the problem, understand, understand this so clearly, please, the problem is not in the scriptures. The problem is in the man. There's nothing in the scriptures that is missing that needs an infallibility outside of the scriptures to bring such a man to certainty. The Spirit and the Scriptures are sufficient. So, in fact, Luke is even saying that certainty comes to Theophilus not from what he has been taught in the oral tradition, but by what Luke is writing. And this is the very fascinating order of the wording in verse 4. Theophilus will, of course, discover that the things he has been taught Luke's word, that the things he has been taught are in accord with what Luke has written. Luke does make the clear distinction that what is written is sufficient to establish the certainty of all that Theophilus has ever been taught by the oral tradition, or to remove from Theophilus's mind and heart that which cannot be established with certainty. So look at that word, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. If those things that he has been taught are of the oral tradition, Theophilus is invited to find their certainty in the written. There may indeed be certainty because they will soon be in accord. But there may not be, 
There may be some things that are folly. And we heard this morning that there's some men who came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching. And what they were teaching was canceled by what was written by the apostles. Now, for those of you who have a little bit of an interest in these things, the word taught in your English translation is the Greek word catechesis. Katekeo. So that means that Luke is not sending away the teaching office of the church. The teaching office of the church is in no way in conflict with sola scriptura, with the sufficiency of scripture. Luke means for no one to think it is. But what he means for Theophilus and us to think is that the authority of Scripture is in the things that are written. So Scripture itself points to Scripture as the final authority for faith and practice. It doesn't point to an infallible interpreter who is not Scripture, named Leo, or any other pope. It points to scripture itself. Let me give you a few passages to confirm this to you. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4, we read these words. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. The ancient Israelite was responsible, regardless of their level of education, regardless of their level of literacy, they were responsible as individuals before God to know and to obey the commandments of God and not be led away by somebody who could perform a miracle and then use that miracle to say, I have an authority as evidenced by my miracle that is greater than the authority of God's commandments. The Lord is simply testing them, binding them to that commandment that he has given, and it was written. Who wrote it? Who wrote the commandments mentioned in Deuteronomy 13? The Lord himself did with his own finger on tablets of stone. You see, the Lord is binding his people into a love relationship mediated through his word. No wonder when our Lord and Savior comes, he is identified to us as the eternal word. I want to show you another passage. Mark 7, 9 through 13. Scripture pointing to scripture itself as the final authority, not pointing to something outside of scripture. Mark 7, 9, and he said to them, our Lord Jesus, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things, many such things, many such things you do. Now, did you notice something there? Our Lord Jesus says, Moses said, and then he quotes the commands from Scripture. He does not insert an interpretation of those commands. He does not quote a teacher outside of Scripture. He quotes the command from Scripture. But when he turns and quotes their tradition and says, but you say, and then he quotes them, that which he quotes about Corbin cannot be found anywhere in Scripture except in this passage, and it is being brought into the mouth of our Lord simply to show that it is rebellion. The Lord is teaching the church here that the commands of Scripture themselves are sufficient, and the, and the smallest little Christian who stands against a whole world of popes because he has the word of God is showing more honor to God than men who live by their traditions and even live in greatness because of it. One, well, a couple more. Luke 24, verse 25. I, again, I'm showing you that the scriptures themselves point to the scriptures as the final authority. They do not point to something outside the scriptures. Luke 24, 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Lord is talking to his disciples after the resurrection. And he doesn't say that there's something unclear in the scriptures. That's not why they couldn't see Christ in the prophets. There was something unclear in them. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Our Lord is holding them in love and liability for their not finding in the scriptures that which was written with authority concerning him. And then what does he do? To cure them, to heal them, because he is their savior, right? This is the ministry of your healing savior to you, that you would be able to go back to the scriptures and by the care of his spirit, rightly cut the scriptures, rightly divide the scriptures, rightly interpret them, because they are the infallibility in the church the infallible authority. So Jesus actually heals us as he heals these disciples to enter the infallible authority of the church and understand it and be bound by it. Now in that same chapter, Luke 24, 20 verses later, listen to what the Lord says. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, can you imagine somebody walking up and saying, let's cross out that last sentence. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and write in there, and he gave them an infallible pope and magisterium and college of cardinals to understand the scriptures. Sacrilege, blasphemy. The Lord gives understanding of the scriptures. Of the scriptures. <laughs> of the scriptures. Where do you go to use this grace of the Spirit that the Lord gives to all he saves and heals? Well, you go to the scriptures. You don't go to the popes. You go to the scriptures. <clears throat> Someone once said when Paul sent an epistle to a church, he did not send along an infallible interpreter. Do you know what he sent? He sent on an infallible scripture. Because <laughs> he knew that in giving the scripture, giving the word of God to the church of God, he was giving them the ministry of the Spirit as well. As the Spirit is the divine author of scripture, he is the divine interpreter of scripture. And so Luther said this, one of his most famous quotes, the word comes first. And with the word, the Spirit breathes upon my heart so that I believe. Beloved, we have received apostles and prophets. We have received the scriptures in written form, the inscripturated word. We have received it so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You will not have every kind of certainty. You will not know things the way God knows them, such as a form of rationalism, to think that is possible. You will not know things that cannot be known. The secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to his people. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And there are some things you should not desire to know, as we learned in our great fall, when Satan tried to sell a desire to know things that should not be known. But we are to have certainty in what? This is like a catechism question. You should know the answer. In the things that are written. In the things that are written. This is where our certainty lies. And what are the things that are written? All that concerns us in matters of faith and practice, all that is necessary for our salvation and for a life that is pleasing unto God. Where is it? It is in the scriptures. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Father, we pray that you would continue to come and deliver men and women and boys and girls from the false authorities that are always crouching beside their door, seeking to devour them. And Father, we confess that we could have spoken much tonight in another message about the false authority of ourselves, that we would think that we are to read the Bible 
as if for the first time by ourselves and not with the church. Lord, we thank you for how even Luke in verse 4 dispels the notion that we are to live without catechesis. We are, to, we are much in need of it. And Father, we pray, though, that we would test it all by the infallible scriptures. We thank you for how it has pleased you to bind us to your heart by your written word. And we thank you, Father, for how you have honored everyone in your church through the ages who has stood upon your word, who have confidently said, thus saith the Lord, and have spoken the truth by the care of your spirit. Father, we pray that all who have heard these things tonight would be emboldened themselves to recognize that the infallible authority in the church, over the church, is given in what is written. We pray and give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.